Welcome to Fitness or Fiction. This week on the show, we're discussing BCAA's branch chain amino acids. Mm-hmm. The position, the question is, are they worth it? They're kind of expensive, lots of them, yeah? I would say so. Yeah, especially... I, I purchased my fair amount back in the day. Yeah. I still consume BCAAs sometimes. Do you? I do, sometimes. Hmm. But... Yeah, we're going to talk about whether that is a good practice or a good idea. So one thing that I found, and the reason this question really came up is, as I watch people gain momentum with their fitness, they inevitably get to this spot where it's like, okay, well, I want to know what else I should be doing to help. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a pertinent question. Should I spend that money on supplements or should I keep that money and reinvest it in coaching or other places, equipment? Uh, there's a lot of things you could choose. Mm -hmm. Um is it worth it is, is a really good choice when it comes to buying decisions, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I definitely, when I started my fitness journey 10 years ago, BCAAs, they weren't even really on the market as much. It kind of came like maybe two, three years later and it started to kind of gain traction, popularity, a lot due to marketing. And I don't know, for speaking for myself anyways, they were marketed to me as they, they help your body prevent from going catabolic and eating your own muscle tissue. You should take these during your workout so you're consuming your bcaa's during your workout and they will help help your body stop from like eating your own muscle tissue and breaking down your muscle tissue so it helped you kind of maintain your muscle mass and make sure that you're kind of training at peak performance yeah i don't want to say that this is a new topic but like when i was exercising like 97 98 mm -hmm. the protein powders that were out were mostly just like milk powder mm -hmm. and the stuff that was coming out like if you didn't mix that with a blender and lots of other stuff, it was not good. Like like taste-wise? Yeah. Yeah. A variety of things-wise. Like even like it was so chalky. It was like, man, I remember cleaning the chalkboard in class when I was in elementary, if you can believe that. I'm that old. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, I think this is chalk. I think it's actually chalk powder. Yeah. So the BCAAs, my experience of them, some of them taste delicious, some of them taste like trash, some of them were just pure chalk and they did not dissolve in water at all, and some oh. of them dissolved amazing, and the ones that would dissolve amazing and taste delicious, it cost you 70 to 100 bucks for a, a fairly large tub, and it would last a while, and it did taste good, you know, like it kept, when your workout was going, it kind of... It was like a little bit of a sugar... Yeah. A sugar even kick. Even when it wasn't sugar. Even wasn't yeah. sugar, yeah, and that would... Uh, it could be even be marketed to people. I know people were marketed to take BCAAs if they just hated drinking water. Like, oh, you hate drinking water? Well, why don't you just put half a scoop of BCAAs in it and make your water taste a little bit better? Right. You're getting some good stuff that you need, like, or probably need, and go for it. Yeah. Well, do you want to get into that al already, or do you want to do last week and wins, or what do you want to get to? Do you want to just keep going into it? We can jump into a couple wins. Okay. So last week we talked about targeted fat loss. Mm-hmm. That was good. The place I landed on that was, well, it's fiction. not, yeah, well, it's fiction and not good to market, but I really don't think they've done a good job prove, disproving it yet. We, we saw some generalized kind of zone specific results. And so I don't think that we can legitimately say yes or no, mm -hmm. but I would say we haven't done a good enough job proving it to act like it's truth, which we see a lot. So we called that fiction, even though there could be the result of that, but even anecdotally, when you look at people, they're like, oh, I do bicep curls every day. It's like, oh, are you significantly leaner there? And the answer is usually not really. Yeah. So that one, I think it's fair to call it fiction. 
how are you feeling about the conversation last week? Yeah, I always felt like it was relative fiction. I always told people it was fiction. I definitely agree with looking into the studies. I would like to see more well-rounded studies or more complete studies because each one seemed to be a little bit different or I felt like they were missing a nutrition component or even their exercise protocol component was a little wonky. Like, let's do a thousand reps of leg press with one leg with garbage weight and probably zero effort and intensity which i don't think would stimulate much anyways yeah in my view is that the program design needs to be better they need to do it on like stimulus specific like okay we didn't just do eight to ten reps we ensured that this person had this many reps in reserve and by the end we're hitting failure i think that's a much better measure so you know the study um, makeup is one thing and then the other thing that i noticed was a lot of them it's really hard to say well does it exist or not because they didn't lose much body fat in the first place yeah i just want to speak for everybody including myself and just say that even if they do a good study on it i'm going to put my chips that it's still fiction (laughs) well you know it's a it's a fair spot to go because generally healthy decisions and things that are going to improve your performance long term are going to be the things that are going to change that anyways. So, And for me, if it is, if it does come to light that it's fitness, I think that it's such a small little component. It's going to be such a small like percentile of like loss that I don't think it's going to be worth your time to focus on that area. And you're going to be better off just focusing on the whole anyways. Yeah, let's focus on better decisions. Let's yeah. start there. So, okay, yeah. that's good. We landed in a similar spot. That's good. So wins for the last week. I've got a two-fold win. I was at a contest with my client David this weekend, and he um, came in first in his category, um, and he PR'd all three lifts after you know coming out of COVID, and uh, you know I was really proud of him, but I got an extra win on top of that. Came home, my sons William and Lucas were asking me where I was, and I showed them some videos of David lifting, and they were really interested in it, and. They were asking if they could learn how to do those lifts. And I said, sure. And Lucas has a plastic bar. Will has an aluminum bar that's 15 pounds. And I was like, let's learn how to squat bench dead. So we went out into the garage and did that. And uh, I was really proud of them, man. Like they, the way that they learn stuff, I showed Lucas like three different things on bench press. And he delivered a really good bench press with 15 pounds, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it's half body weight. Um, not going to be something that causes any problems. And he was having a great time. So much so that they asked again uh, last night and the previous night, can we do one of the lifts? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that sort of that sort of engagement in experiencing how to control their own body is really, really exciting. And one of the big things that I was excited about was when I gave them the conversation of, this needs to look a certain way. It needs to be a certain quality before you ever can even think about more weight. So it's a quality game. It's not like a lot of things where you do this and you win. For you guys, this is all about control and quality. And then buying into that was really good. Will stopping and looking at me saying, hey, can I do more based on how that looked? Yeah. Um, I'm just so proud of my little guys. <laughs> did you take Did you take videos of their technique and like show it to them so they could actually see for themselves? Uh, yes, mm-hmm, indeed. Haven't posted it online yet because I'm, I'm certain I'm going to get Karen's tell me that that's not safe, even though they're not educated on the matter. Which brings me to the point, we kind of discussed this offline, but I think that's a good next episode because fitness or fiction, I think that's a big topic that not a lot of people are aware of. Oh, you shouldn't, like kids shouldn't be working out like that. Oh, kids shouldn't be lifting weights. It's going to reduce their, it's going to stimulate, like reduce their growth. It'll break their growth plates. Yeah. As a little preamble, um, people are okay letting their kids play soccer and 
and hockey and have like three to five times body weight on say when you're sprinting the amount of force on one leg Mm -hmm. can especially changing directions can approach five times body weight it's like listen do a leg extension with 15 pounds Mm, they're broken for life bro there's no way i'm letting my kids into soccer or football i'm just saying that right now well i'd let will play both of those i would but my thing is i also watch will jump off of things that are higher than his head and land and be like yeah i'm good it's like do you know how much force is in that like stop thinking about well this is this is trouble for their body when when you understand forces and the amount of stuff that, that are going on in their body in the first place but i need to stop because i can go on about that we'll do that another day yeah for me i just know way too many people who've played hockey and soccer and just have destroyed knees like their knees are just mutilated and i did martial arts for a really long time and i did boxing for a really long time and i don't have that many issues to show after the fact and for me i want my kids to have a healthy body when they're 30 not be going through their third knee surgery but that you know that that comes up to something really good would that have been the case had they gone through the proper training awareness and control because those knee injuries, a lot of them are ACLs and meniscus. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those are specifically because they never trained knee rotation. Mm-hmm. And yes, your knee needs to rotate. The medial aspect where your tibia connects is actually a shallow ball and socket joint. And rotation is what allows you to do lateral cutting. Mm-hmm. Do you need rotation at the knee? The answer is yes. What don't people train? Rotation. What don't they train after an ACL surgery? Rotation. And what's one of the most redone surgeries? ACL. So it, it follows... But yeah, we'll talk about that another time. Okay. <laughs> win, win from you. Yeah. So we, I think we talked on it briefly. I was in vacation. I went to Tofino. I was hoping to go surfing and things like that. I got sick. Really mm, nasty. Rode the wave of illness. Really nasty for probably the six I've been in a couple of years, especially with being quarantined and things like that. So I got rocked. And when I came home from vacation, like it wasn't COVID or anything, but I was still feeling rough. Hashtag no COVID. Hey. Hashtag not COVID. And, but yeah, I've been feeling a little bit better. I managed my stress a little bit better and just been feeling good overall. And I've done some pretty decent workouts where I'm kind of enjoying things more. Um, working on like a press to handstand. I've been doing it eccentrically off my handstand cane. So I pop into a straddle handstand and try to slowly lower myself. And as me and you've discussed in the past, it's like my core compression is kind of the challenge for me. And then also doing like some back handspringy type drills where I've been placing my feet on a box for like in a bridge position and trying to walk over, flip over backwards. That's something I really want to do. It's something for me just in general signifies that I have a healthy spine in like both planes of movement, like flexion and extension. And I just know, and you know that my extension is kind of balls, especially T-spine. Yeah. So going into that position, I think the more I do it though, it's, it's kind of, it's an, it's a natural playful way to kind of open it up. Well, Ido Portal always said you're only as old as your spine. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some, there's some truth to that for sure. I think. Yeah. So I actually had a lot of fun doing that though. Just like playful, playful training, little, little fun drills like that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You should be enjoying what you're doing. That's awesome. And try not to fall on my head while doing it. That's key. Yeah. That's important. Cognitive function after is nice. I've seen some people fall on their head after doing handstands. It doesn't look like a good time. Mm -mm. No, I don't recommend it. Don't do that. It's bad for you. But let's get into the episode today. So when we start looking at what we're talking about today, we're talking about BCAs. We've mentioned that a little bit. There's a few things we have to get through. It's A, what are they? What are they used for? And are they worth purchasing? And especially, I'm going to say, especially early on in the journey. that I'm going to put in there, but 
the question is fitness or fiction bcas are something i should take yes so i'll get into the basics hit that basic train unquotations of what they are so essentially protein is made up of amino acids and there's 20 amino acids nine of them are essential meaning that we can't get them through our body our body doesn't produce it they need to come from our diet and out of those nine essentials three of them are branch chain amino acids which is valine isoleucine and leucine and they assist with things like protein metabolism neurological function and insulin regulation um i think that's the basics that's that's pretty good yeah yeah amino acids are the building blocks of proteins and the real question is what do they do in exercise and I would say that the easiest thing, we're, we're talking mainly about leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Um, leucine is supposed to be the big guy that really starts with um, muscle metabolism or, or you know, building new muscle is, is really what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be a metabolic signaler um, stimulating the mTOR pathway, which is mammalian target of rhabdomyosin. Rhabdomyosin, rhabdomyosin they discovered in the 20th century um, I think in the 60s, actually, on Easter Island, of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, but they couldn't figure out why there was benefits to taking it. And when they started discovering that, they're like, this is the mammalian target of rhabdomyosin pathway. Um, so like AMPK is something that inhibits that. Um, and this is really muscle building, kind of anabolic pathway type stuff. So when we look at this, we usually call it protein synthesis. So the question is, just because leucine upregulates and and triggers um anabolism does that does that end up resulting in more protein uh, synthesis and protein synthesis is building the building of the tissue right and there's protein breakdown which is essentially the breaking down of the tissue both which are happening in the body on a constant daily regular cycle that's right yeah so basically when you fatigue a muscle um you're gonna get breakdown Mm-hmm. And these little micro tears need to be repaired. So the lysosome will help break it down. And this is in the cytosome of the cell. Um, but the lysosome will come in and help finish breaking that down into its components. And then the ribosome will transcribe mRNA and say, listen, here's how we copy that muscle. Um, that um, it's actually the myofibril. Your muscle cells only grow. And that's by doing more myofibrils or by holding more fuel in the form of glycogen, essentially little bit of an oversimplification but it either is going to hold more fuel or it's going to um, increase the amount of mitochondria or there is a third one where it's it's going to be um, transcribing more nuclei and that's that type of muscle gain isn't that one's harder to to really qualify because it's basically giving more brains so you can activate the muscle you have so the larger your muscles get the more nuclei they have so it's one of those ones, but there are three types of hypertrophy and, and the position that people are taking is, well, if I stimulate protein synthesis, I'm going to gain more muscle. That's, that's usually what it is. Yeah. So stimulating protein synthesis, it can be stimulated by a couple things, but like resistance training or lifting weights is obviously one stimulant. And then eating more of a protein rich diet is an additional stimulant. So I don't know if it's fair to say this. But, you know, like protein breakdown, is it is it fair to say that if you're not doing one of these stimuluses like resistance training or eating more protein that like if you're not adding to the team, then by default, you're taking away. And that's how as we age and as we get older, people are losing muscle. Yeah. So I would actually say that one of the largest pieces to losing muscle is neurological function. So like if your ability to use that muscle is less, like if you're let's say your maximum 
dumbbell press is 50 pounds. If your ability to do the bench press is that, it's like, well, what am I gonna do for 10? Probably 70% of that. So seven by five, 35 pounds, beautiful. Let's say your max was 100 pounds. So 70% is 70 pounds, and you're able to do that three of 10. Are you gonna be able to gain more muscle? Yes, your ability to activate it, is it gonna keep it around? Yes. So, you know, it's, it's a really challenging topic because it's not just about protein synthesis, it's also about retention. And, you know, when we get into the studies, there's some things to say about that because they're studying, you know, is it gonna increase muscle gain and usually the answer is no, but does that mean it's fiction is my question. So how about we get into some marketing quick before we, we go into the studies. Yeah. The marketing thing, BCAs are, are marketed really strongly to keep a anabolic state in your body. Usually anabolic state is like, well, gaining muscle, losing fat. Catabolic is like I'm adding fat and losing muscle and, and basically slowing down versus speeding up. Mm -hmm. It's not that simple. Like cortisol is actually anabolic to the muscles because it's taking carbohydrates to the muscle, but it's seen as the catabolic hormone. And that might be true systemically, but it needs to be looked at more tissue specific, but we're getting pretty deep into it. We're going to just stay with the surface. Anabolism means more muscle, less fat. Catabolism means slower metabolism, meaning a little bit more fat and and less energy type stuff. That's yeah. usually what it's looked at. So, yeah, marketing-wise, it was often marketed to me as like, oh, it prevents your body from going catabolic, so you yeah. don't you don't eat your tissue while you train. You you drink it during your workout or pre-workout, yeah, or pre-workout. And it was also kind of explained in the sense of if you if you were kind of fasted or you didn't have a lot of fuel in the tank, that it would kind of like be a little bit of a replacement for that fuel until you right. could actually get some food in you. Yeah, and, and I actually, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to hear where you land on this as far as fitness or fiction. Um, for me, I think that the specific uses need to be pre-qualified. And as with most marketing, it's it's super simple because people need to be able to digest it. But the, the real question, is it worth it? Would I spend my money on it? Well, that's what we're going to answer. Mm -hmm. So um, when we get into the studies, there's a variety of different studies that I looked at. And, you know, looking at what's out there. I'm like, well, you know, supplementing BCAs post-workout is no more effective than sugar at improving recovery. So they took, oh, what's this one? I think it's 30 people. This particular one, they're testing, does BCA supplementation um, help versus just sugar? And what they looked at is, okay, so they're doing mostly quad work and they're testing a one RM back squat afterwards. They're doing 10 sets of five repetitions at 80% of their one RM. And they do that for three consecutive days. Um, and yeah, they're, they're testing differences between them. Uh, but you know, 30 males that are resistance trained um, with that sort of protocol, what we're looking for is recovery and strength maintenance um, by taking BCAs versus carbohydrates. And I'm not shocked to see that in this study, the answer was, well, they're pretty similar. Like, their decrease in performance is pretty similar. Um, their overall muscle levels were pretty similar and their overall body fat was pretty similar. That doesn't shock me because they're essentially, especially after a workout, they're essentially interchangeable. Like branch chain amino acids are gonna be used to stimulate the formulation of more glycogen and help transport that to the muscle. Mm -hmm. So should there be a huge difference? I would say in that study, I'm like, well, it's really important that we look at questions like this, but I would have expected it. So that would 
that would be something that would confirm my own little bias there but it's because of the similarity of what we're actually doing and it comes back to we're redepositing energy in the muscle mm-hmm. uh, in the form of liquid sugar glycogen i love liquid sugar that's my favorite sugars well, it is pretty delicious in any <laughs> delivery mechanism. How about you? You got a you got a study there to talk about. So yeah, um, I didn't get into like I didn't write down the details of the exercise program, but if you want, I have um, the the studies in the show notes for the podcast. But on the basics, this study was in 2018. There was 20 males, and they were testing to see the recovery of these males after an eccentric specific uh, resistance training program. Right. So. I think the nutrition, again, like I think nutrition and sleep and stress all play a pretty big role into all of these studies. So for this specific study, they were doing about 1.2 grams of protein per pound of body weight while they were doing this. And they were also taking BCAAs on top of that. Right. And essentially when can like the conclusion of this study after their 12 weeks of exercise program is there wasn't a big change and the BCAAs didn't really have much much effect on muscle recovery, especially they concluded the statement with it being that they were eating a very high, regularly high protein diet of like 1.2 grams per pound of body weight is more than what the average person in North America is getting for their protein intake. But there was some weird added benefits of isometric capabilities after the eccentric tissue damage being these these guys would go through an eccentric training program and break down their tissue and they had a little bit of benefits with static or isometric holds even though the tissue was kind of already damaged whereas if they weren't taking it or those who were on the placebo their isometric ability was a little bit less than yeah and that's super interesting to me because for they're talking about like a recreational athlete no they're not going to notice that too much it's like well if you're not a recreational athlete and you're competing in weightlifting or powerlifting or something like this that extra isometric strength afterwards is telling me, well, their neurological system is in a better state after. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to be really important when it comes to absolute strength um, and training that quality. So, you know, for me, I'm like, yeah, okay, so that didn't help them with their body comp or anything, but their total strength levels going up or their neurological sensation after means either A, they're going to feel way less smoked or B, which is also very likely, they're going to feel less smoked so they can do more. So, they will actually benefit more over time, especially. But in a short eight-week study, are we going to see that? Mm, not really, especially because they're not really doing neurological training there. So Yeah, and then on that one, the isometric difference was pretty... It wasn't something to like call home about or anything. It was pretty small, which is right. why they didn't get into it too, too much. But right. that, was, that was that one particular study. Yeah, so my next one was specifically uh, eight weeks of heavy training for untrained males, so 19 of them, and they were doing eight to 10 reps four times a week for eight weeks while ingesting nine grams previous and post-exercise, and there was a placebo group as well, so they didn't know if they were taking it or not. Mm -hmm. For both groups, uh, total body mass, they really hadn't significantly changed anyways, and there's no significant changes in total body water. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, as far as changes in fat mass and fat-free mass, there really wasn't much. So they concluded that when combined with heavy resistance training for eight weeks, supplementation with nine grams a day, 30 minutes previous and post had no preferential effects for body composition. My big things with this is like, okay, so that seems like it's cut and dry, but 
I'd really like to see something like this designed a little bit more specifically. Like here's the stimulus we're using and here's how we know that they're hitting that stimulus. And you know, it's pretty random to just say, well, I'm going to do this many sets of this. It's like, well, listen, three sets of eight to 10 for a lot of people that are untrained, you're not going to get a lot of stimulus there. You'd probably want to do more reps because untrained individuals have a harder time activating specific muscles. Um, so it's going to be harder for them to get the stimulus out of that. And if you aren't identifying stimulus, different people are going to be at different phases based on their, their physiology, where it's like, well, for him to actually reach fatigue within this window of time, it actually took this many reps, but it was still this amount of time or it was a different weight or, or whatever. So having that identified would be good. Um, but really what this tells me is like, okay, so, you know, you take somebody on a, on a program that's just pretty standard and, you know, see people, most people start in the gym with three to 10, that's what they do. Um, and you add BCAs, is it worth it at that point? I'd be like, well, before and after, I don't think after would make any difference in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, eat anything after it'll do that. Yeah. So during that, it's going to be a quick way to replenish glycogen in the muscle. So that one is studying 30 minutes previous, but is not studying with like intranutrition. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that's, that's that study. Yeah. So my next one was 2011 and they were curious if BCAAs affect aerobic performance. So again, it's, it's interesting because they, there's, picked essentially nine untrained males so nine guys who don't exercise a lot and they were subject to 90 minutes of cycling bouts at various perform like percentages of their vo2 max and they were given again some of them were given a bcaa beverage and some were given a placebo beverage and they trained doing this for eight weeks and the conclusion was that their performance and time wasn't wasn't improved at all in either case those who were taking the supplement and those who were on the placebo effect but the ones who were taking the BCAAs actually had, um, they were testing RPE as well, which is rate of perceived exertion, AKA, how do you feel on a scale of one to 10? And those who were taking the BCAAs had a slightly reduced perceived exertion being like, you know, if the other guys were saying it was a seven, the guys who were on the BCAAs felt like it was a six. Yeah, that's interesting because, okay, that's subjective by nature, of course, a little bit, but people have an idea of how they feel, I think. Um, I think that one really draws to the idea that if I feel a little bit less fatigued, especially over time, I think that would be a compounding effect mm -hmm. where it's like, well, I feel a little less fatigued. Maybe I got that extra half rep. Maybe I got an extra one um, before I failed. Mm -hmm. I think that would really equate to a difference over time. I really do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And again, that's untrained males though. So you put that into like me or you, it might be a little bit different after like multiple years of lifting experience. Right. I think you have, can identify what your perceived exertion is better than somebody who is untrained. You know, mm -hmm. something I often talk about with people in the fitness industry is, you know, if you're just starting this, like your perception of pain or your perception of, oh man, that was really heavy. Mm, no, it wasn't. Like you I, can, coaches, like I, I explain to people when somebody does a deadlift, I perceive heavy based off of how fast that bar moves. And if that bar moves like a lightning bolt, and you get it to the top and you're like, wow, that was really heavy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you didn't even yeah. show a sign of struggle. Well, I had a girl on Monday, just a beauty of a trainee, but she stood up with a kettlebell deadlift of 20 kilos. And she was like, oh, that's heavy. I can't, I can't do that. And I was like, okay, well, let's focus on this technique and whatever else. And just kept having her do it. I was like, you just did 12. Mm -hmm. You told me that was hard on the first one. Yeah. So yeah, the, the sensation of challenging will change over time, but... I, th I really think that that change is going to allow increased performance, which will make a difference over time. But 
Short term? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. So the next couple that I have, I've got uh, four in a row, three in a row. Um, one is from 2020, one's from 97, one's from somewhere in between. Um, they're supplementing leucine specifically. And the big dog. Yeah, the big dog. Get that, let the big dog eat. <laughs> but you say when you go up to the T and you pull out the one, one wood, right? Are you talking golf? Yeah, let the big dog eat. You swing away. <laughs> I'm the worst at golf, so I don't know. Probably, <laughs> probably inaccurate. And the golfers out there are probably shaking their heads right now and putting their face in their that's hands. Not, that's not what we say. Let the big dog eat. Hit that ball. Yep. Okay. Uh, so anyways, these three studies, um, we're looking at leucine. The first one, it's like, well, if I'm supplementing for eight weeks, it didn't increase any measure of strength development or muscle growth. Uh, we've seen that already. And leucine on its own, probably not going to do it as well anyways. Um, and then we have another one, high dose over 12 weeks, didn't enhance gains in muscle strength or mass. Um, and this is young trained males consuming adequate amounts of protein. So a lot of what they're doing is testing. If they're taking protein, does it increase that? So um, I'm actually not surprised to hear that. And then the third one on the same topic was in 97 and it was comparing several weight loss diet groups of elite wrestlers. And it's like, well, that on top of protein sufficient intake um, really had no effect on muscle retention, subcutaneous fat loss, or aerobic performance, anaerobic performance, or strength. So that's, that's a mouthful. It's like, it didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Um, so that's that's something to look at. Um, the big thing that I look at with those studies is that's sufficient protein intake. And the average person, like you're dealing with competitive wrestlers and you're, you're telling people you have to have this much protein and whatever else. A, I'm not seeing huge amounts of muscle gain anyway, so there's it's really hard to put a difference in them. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I'm looking at is like, well, okay, that's a big if because most people that I talk to about how much their protein intake is, when they start putting it down on paper, they're like, oh, I didn't realize it was that low. It's always less than 100. Everybody, yeah. not everybody, every adult I know weighs more than 100 pounds except for a small few. And everybody's taking in less than 100 grams. Yeah, well, I I did this with a client not too long ago, and this person was intaking 39 grams a day of protein. Getting huge. Yeah. Jacked. So, anyways, yeah, that's a big if. But it does spell, you know, do we need those if this is in place? So, what if we just increased our protein? Ooh, that's crazy talk. That doesn't sound like it would work. I can't just buy that and scoop it in a cup. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you can. You can get protein powder. Anyways, uh, you have another one you want to talk about, yeah? Yeah, I think we've rammed home many, many studies. So I'm going to keep this one short and sweet. In 2017, they did a study. People lifted weights and did an exercise program. This one, they were injecting the BCAAs intravenously, which they were like, oh, it's roughly the same thing as taking it orally. It has the same effect. It's kind of breaking down to the same conclusion, though. If we're just going to stay, study concluded a physiological significant increase in the rate of muscle protein synthesis requires adequate availability of all the amino acids, not just the three that you bought in that plastic container. BCAAs. Science power. Science power. Yeah, that's great. Muscle. Um, yeah, you know what? When I... When I get into all these studies, there's one last one that I'm like, you know what? That's actually pretty good to look at. 
And this one's a little bit different because it was testing. It was like how much they can, how much money they can make off selling it. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> how much money is to be made? There's actually a, that would be interesting. There's a fair bit of money in this fair, supplement. Yeah. Um, there's one of these things that they look at is like, well, let's look at people that are, well, A, the elderly, um, competitive canoeists, um, and really kind of look at this as far as muscle wasting. And it's like, well, there's BCAs, especially leucine, does not actually prevent muscle loss, even in cases of severe muscle wasting, which is really interesting because that's, uh, that is something that I, I've heard a lot. And I'm like, okay, so it doesn't prevent muscle wasting, even in significant cases. It's like, well, so what's more important, the BCAs being present or the actual challenge on the neurological system, the metabolism the muscular system accordingly. It's really interesting. I only really found a study or two that were positive, but they were very clear that they were funded by a BCA company. Mm. So they um, probably made some money too. Maybe, maybe, but you know, overall, when I look at, at BCAs, I think the best usage of BCAs, especially based on anecdotal evidence. And there is some, like you mentioned of like, isometric strength and little changes like that. What I've witnessed and, and noticed myself is when I'm going deep, like neurological, meaning I'm going to see how much I can lift today and I'm going to go deep into systemic metabolism, meaning I'm doing a big circuit and it's going to be really hard. That's when I think that intra workout. So taking BCAs during your workout is a really valuable thing because it gives you this little extra push. And that's a lot of that is anecdotal, but I've seen it many times and experienced it myself. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe it's placebo because I don't, it's, it's, it's something that I would notice specifically. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's something that I would say, okay, if you're going to deplete liver glycogen, you're going to do a big circuit with a lot of muscle tissue calling for a lot of carbs, branch chains are going to help replenish that glycogen faster. You're going to actually have a little bit less fatigue. You're going to feel a little less fatigue. So you might get that one extra that can be a big deal in a competitive environment and training like that is probably a good idea. But I think it's really clear that post-workout BCAs, that I would call fiction. I would call post-workout BCAs fiction overall. Say so if you're taking in enough protein, I think we have enough studies to say, well, that's probably not something you need. Mm -hmm. Intra-workout, especially if you're going to do something that's neurological, even something like mechanical tension where you're trying to get a lot of load moved, um, then it's, I think that makes sense. And if you're doing something that's metabolic, like really hard circuiting or something like that, it would make a lot of sense intro workout during the workout. But I think that they are overhyped and we got to cut through that baby. Um, so yeah, it sounds like you're pro BCAA is a real bit. Yeah. So Curtis, do you work for a BCAA I company? I don't. I, <laughs> I wish I did. I hear they're doing well, <laughs> but so I'm, I'm going to say that the idea that taking BCAs stops you from losing muscle and makes you gain extra muscle is fiction. But I am going to say that the idea of protein of BCAs in addition to protein during a workout or previous to really challenging bouts would actually make a lot of sense in my mind. Mm -hmm. So where for, are you at? So one of the possible usages that I found for potentially taking in BCAAs was if you're like on a vegan diet, that's like relatively harder to get protein. Mm. So if you're taking in like a lot of vegetable based proteins and things like that, like some of these BCAAs or some of these 
amino acids in general are much more prominent in meat-based proteins. So that's not to say, though, that if you are consuming better protein sources in your vegan diet, like beans and soy and quinoa, that those might supplement it properly. So it could be just boiling down to having more of your plant-based proteins. But again, maybe you don't want to eat more of those plant-based proteins. Maybe you feel full. Maybe it's not conducive to your lifestyle. Listen, if you're going to have a day where you're low on protein and you know that, um, I would say better than BCAs is EAAs, essential amino acids. Mm -hmm. And for somebody that's on a vegan diet or has a hard time getting protein in their diet, um, EAAs are going to be the closest to actually just taking in protein. So those can be a really, really good supplement for people. Um, but that's that's a topic for another time. Yeah, and then the other kicker where I landed, personally anyways, with the, the studies that I've read and the research that I did was, like, rather than taking BCAAs, even intra or pre-workout, why not just have some protein, like a protein bar or a protein just shake? Just do better, Eric. Just Why not just go and kill a deer and start <laughs> eating it raw? No. <laughs> But That's like, a scary picture. Why why, why are we going to have BCAAs intra-workout, a purely three-amino acid beverage, when you can just have, say, half of a protein shake, maybe about 15 grams of protein, and drink that intra-workout? Yeah, well, I think that would really come back to digestion. Uh, so, like, even when you look at protein supplementation for, like, me, I, I don't take in dairy. So, I'm looking at, like, pea and rice and potato and all these other different protein sources, but... I think that's a lot of load on your system. So mm -hmm. it's going to be much harder to process, especially when you're doing something, like I said, that's higher intensity. Um, intensity meaning more load or more systemic uh, challenge. Yeah. Um, so that's why I, I think that would be a good so thing. So that's the argument against it. Yeah, it, it would be like, yeah, that actually makes sense to me. Like taking a protein shake while you're exercising is usually not a great practice. Like, um, especially once you're starting to approach acidosis and stuff, you're going to see somebody puke for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to say for sure, but I've seen it. So Yeah, it was recommended to me years ago by a bodybuilder who like was a, a trainer with me on the crew. And when we were like, I was pretty heavy into supplementation at the time, and he was like starting to refer me to like, oh, take a half, like, half a dosage of powdered Gatorade and mix that in with some chocolate protein. And it was kind of like a dirt beverage of like chocolatey orange. But it wasn't terrible and whatever. And like chocolate that was orange is the worst. And stop right there. Chocolate <laughs> orange is the worst. You buy me one of those for Christmas, I'll crack you with it. On the head. Bam. Yeah, I'm going to use it like a knuckle duster. But yeah, so I would say that I would say that that's not a terrible solution, but taking in your digestive issues is something to be considered for sure. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, I think protein after BCAs during makes a lot of sense. And the argument for BCAs with me is having more glycogen for the muscle. Um, there, even if you get a small change in, in RPE, it would be worth it. And also if you're less neurologically fatigued after it would be worth it. So I'm actually on the pro side. I'm going to say that it is fiction based on how it's marketed, but especially intro workout, if you're going to take something into a workout it's probably a really good choice. I'm not decided yet. So I'm 170 pound male. If I was catching, like getting in 200 grams of protein daily, do I still need those BCAAs? Are they still going to give me that little bit of difference? And in the studies that I had like read, they did talk about like, well, athletes will try to get every little bit they can, you know, especially if you're going for a record or something like that. Yeah, like 1%, that could be the game changer. So for athletes, maybe. But if you're consuming adequate protein for gen pop, 
would you still say that it's valuable for just gen pop? And considering that this is also an expensive supplement for well, gen pop. That's the reason I say fiction. Like I can see the uses and I get it, but the reason that I say fiction is like, well, okay, you look at the average person. Is it more important that they spend their time, focus, money on getting consistent with the right behaviors, both dietary and exercise? I could add a recovery, but I said both, so I gotta leave it to dietary and exercise. But if we only fixed exercise, we could actually have a really big win still because we'd be like, okay, well, listen, you're exercising a lot. Am I really worried about the minutia of BCAs when somebody first starts exercising? No, I'm worried about, are you gonna do workouts this week? Like, can we create that behavior? I don't need to add complexity. So I'm gonna say, you know, the way it's marketed, it's fiction. But as far as there being a benefit for somebody that's a little bit higher level, they've got their, they've got a lot of things in order and they're looking for that extra 1% possibility, I would actually say, you know, fitness. So it's, it's two sides of the coin there. Yeah, I'm trying to still reach the destination here. Being, I agree with everything that you're saying. I'm just trying to draw the line in the sand and when it's actually valuable for said person to actually intake it. Maybe that is a financial decision for sure. You should be relatively well off if you're going to be spending money on something that's going to yield potentially a small a small kick, small boost. That's perfect. Let's talk about it that way. So is it worth it is the biggest question, right? Mm. I'm saying, well, is there some studies that I can see value? So that's why I'm saying yes. Should the average person that's just starting working out worry about that? I'm going to say likely not. Mm-hmm. Like if you took that same money and put it into seeing your trainer an extra time that week or getting another kettlebell for your house or some bands so you can get the system working more i think that that would be more valuable because instead of one rep we're talking about an extra bout of an exercise per week what about a playstation 5 so you can recover harder (laughs) i didn't know we were on five (laughs) what we're on five curtis they have five of them now listen it used to be called playstation (laughs) (laughs) at least they didn't do anything anyways yeah um so yeah fitness or fiction i feel like it's primarily fiction especially the way it's marketed i can definitely appreciate that there's probably some possible potential benefits i'm not going to put myself as an elite elite athlete or a competitor but i would say i'm relatively well off against gen pop and if you don't think so come at me i'm just kidding i want to see it in this film (laughs) no 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 if you're out there and you consider yourself gen pop yeah. answer the call i'm not i'm not a monster by any means but i'm respectable on my capabilities and i don't think that bcaa's are worth it for me and if i don't think they're worth it for me as a coach and a trainer i don't think they're worth it unless you're actually competing in something for a reason where you're trying to get that extra boost if you're not square on the amount of times you work out per week and really understand the stimulus that you're using and also have your diet and recovery in in check I don't think it's worth it. It's a supplementation and supplementation is supposed to give you that little added kick and diet is the biggest one for most people. Everyone wants to exercise. I explain it. People love to exercise because typically, generically, it makes you feel good, especially after. Some people like it during. Some people need to learn to love it during where they have to like start to fall in love with it. But this like, yeah, this added supplement, I just don't think it's 
it's going to be the best bang for your buck. So I call fiction a little bit of fitness for the high level athletes, but that's like you're the one percenter, you're the the exception to the rule. Not me, a high level athlete. I ain't that right now. That's but let's let's get there. Okay, so there's three pillars: um, your behaviors and execution on exercise, followed by diet. You can say those in any order you want. I'm not saying in order of importance. So we have those. We have diet, and then we have recovery. Until those three are optimized, I'm going to call fiction. I'm going to say it's not a focus yet, nor should you be worried about spending your money on that. You should be more worried on spending your attention on getting those three basic pillars in check. Is that fair? Agreed. Oh, man, we agreed. And we were on different sides of the coin. It can happen, bro. Fitness or fiction. If you guys have any questions, feel free to hit us up. I think um, if you're listening, you should have Curtis's Instagram handle. CoachKurt.h or if you want to talk to me, or if you want to challenge me because I was maybe overstepping a little bit too much. <laughs> oh, here we go. Eric.berg, you can send me a message. Um, but yeah, I think a good episode for the future is potentially talking about the effects of exercise on on children is a good one. Yeah, I think we should talk about, maybe the question would be nice and clean, should kids exercise? Mm-hmm. I think that's a nice, clean question. Good, good. Well, thank you for listening. Leave us a review, subscribe, all the fun stuff. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. Comment, like, review something. See you next time. Science.